As we come back together, uh, we are still in our study of Romans. Uh, not that anybody thought we'd actually get through the book of Romans in three or four weeks. That would be uh, quite, a, quite a task. We are looking at Romans in light of Paul's goal, uh, which seems to be not only to introduce himself, not certain aspects of the text, which uh, clearly indicate that Paul uh, plans on visiting and there's reasons for writing the book at this time, uh, the letter. But more deeply, Paul's ongoing desire, repeated in almost every one of his books explicitly, that we are in the midst of creating a new kind of community, a community which unites the things and the peoples in the world which the world has seen as ununitable, that the gulfs were too big racially, culturally, economically, power, uh, and all of the things that because of their inequalities inherent in a fallen and broken world keep us divided. And Paul is here encouraging the people of Rome and the five, uh, at least five house churches that he's writing to. In the midst of the return of the Jewish believers after an exile of about six years from Rome, to maintain the unity of the body and to not be divided into Gentile and Jewish churches, but to work through what it means to be one in Christ. And he has opened his book reflecting on the righteousness of God. And we've said that the, uh, the first four chapters of Romans are really a revelation of the right actions of God. And what that means in this context is particularly his right actions in relationship to his covenant faithfulness and his working out the progression of the kingdom and its establishment in Christ and its marching forward through the work of God's people by the Holy Spirit. And so we have here in this opening few verses, again, the uh, deep and rich way in which Paul puts so much of his history, so much of his encounter with the risen Christ, so much of his study and reflection into just a short series of verses as he talks about the Messiah who sent him out as an apostle in his initial greeting to the Roman church. And so we're going to put that greeting in front of us again and then reflect this morning a little bit of what it means to have Jesus called the Son of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the presence of the Spirit, and we ask this morning that as we reflect again on the Trinity, its work, and what it means for our Savior to be called the Son of God, and what that looks like for us in response to this great truth. We ask that it would be done graciously and wisely. We pray that words would be spoken that would build up your people. And Lord, whatever is true, uh, untrue, and needs to be forgotten, we pray by your Spirit that you would protect your people. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As we uh, think about Jesus in our day and age and the challenge, perhaps culturally, of a barrier between our understanding of Jesus and a first century understanding of Jesus. There's always pluses and minuses in every culture to understanding the full breadth of what God is communicating in the incarnation, what he's communicating in his covenant faithfulness and in his proclamation of a new kingdom and new creation. And in our day and age, I think, and I just perhaps uh, suggest that we might wrestle with some of the implications of Jesus as Messiah, as King, and as Son of God, that there is a part of our culture which perhaps makes it more accessible to think of Jesus almost like a first responder. We see Jesus clearly as a hero, as a brave person who rescues us from our sin and from death, much like uh, again, the brave and, and wonderful uh, first responders who will, as a firefighter, run into a burning building to rescue somebody, risk all manner of uh, dangers out at sea if they're a Coast Guard person rescuing a, uh, the Coast Guard divers, uh, do amazing things, uh, getting people out of uh, dangerous and uh, deadly situations. And there's a way in which when we think of Jesus primarily as our Savior, and when we emphasize the idea that Jesus came to save us from our sins and someday later take us to heaven, that it becomes culturally more accessible for us to think of him more in line with the very brave men and women who function as first responders than it is to think of Jesus in light of what Paul is talking about. Because, of course, if I am saved uh, by a first responder, let's say uh, I had a heart attack uh, and I am saved uh, by the first responder, it may cause me to change my diet, uh, giving a second uh, lease on life. I may need to make some changes. Or uh, perhaps, uh, again, uh, foolishness of drinking too much, putting myself in a dangerous situation, I may stop drinking because I realize that I'm no longer drinking wisely and it may kill me. And so getting that second lease on life, I may, because of the actions of a first responder, make certain changes in my life. But I'm unlikely to let that first responder dictate to me who I marry, what I'll do with my money, what I do with my own personal sexual ethics, all manner of very private things, very particular things, what I do with my time, what I do with my career and my talents. I'm not going to likely let a first responder dictate to me what the rest of my life is going to look like. He's not going to be the Lord. He or she will not be the Lord of my life. 
But Paul is encouraging here a much stronger view of Jesus than a first responder. That in this culture and in this time, there are a couple of things very specific in verses 3 and 4 that if we see what Paul is talking about, it's going to challenge us. That we're going to not simply see a, a king or a queen in line with somebody, royalty, who makes tabloid news but in that classical sense of one who rules and reigns for the good of the people. So first, we're going to look at what good news meant in first century Rome, in the city of Rome particularly, and then what it means for vindication, to be vindicated by the Spirit in the context of both a Roman and Jewish understanding and then lastly, we'll look at what that means as God calls us to live in light of a resurrected Messiah who has been vindicated in his work in Christ. So first, verse 3, good news. Again, for Romans, uh, good news, and this Greek phrase that Paul repeats here, was used for things like the emperor's birthday or the emperor ascending to the throne. Uh, it is a time in which a person of absolute power becomes uh, someone that is celebrated and venerated throughout the entire community in which they rule. And so, again, for Paul to link the human side of Jesus's existence to David makes sense. Good news one who is a part of a thousand-year-old family dynasty, right? When Jesus is born, it's been a thousand years since David sat on the throne. Time moves quickly. And for a Roman to know that Jesus' lineage was being tied back to a great hero like David, although maybe not in their view quite as great as one of the great Roman uh, founders, nonetheless, as they had encountered Jewish scriptures, the Gentiles would have understood that King David was a mighty, mighty king, and that his line had been a strong line that had lasted nearly four, five hundred years before it finally fell in the falling of the second uh, in the southern kingdom. It would be like for us uh, tracing someone's lineage back to William the Conqueror and uh, the great uh, Plantagenet kings. Dan Brown made a lot of money reflecting on how it would be to draw back to a powerful human line uh, of kings, of royalty. For the Jewish listeners, it was that royal line. It was the promise of Isaiah 11 verse 1 that a shoot will uh, come from the stump of Jesse, that there will be a restoration of that great line, that Jesus is tied back to all of God's covenant promises and faithfulness, and that he is the fulfillment of those promises. It's no small, it's not a complicated thing for either the Jewish folks or for the Romans to imagine that even though G, um, Joseph was not technically Jesus's father, that through adoption and inclusion in the family, that he was a part of that royal line. Uh, some of our hang-ups about those things were not the kinds of hang-ups that were uh, existing in the first century. They understood adoption. They understood what it meant to make people their heirs. 
and to then be engrafted into a line of great kings. And so, again, from right off from the beginning, in verse 3, we have the good news that he was declared first as a descendant of David, a great house, but then also declared to be the Son of God by the power according to the spirit of holiness, the set apart. And again, all of the commentaries I've read said that this part of verse 4 uh, is probably some of the most challenging translation in all of Romans. Not that the core meanings would be lost, but because there are so many nuanced possibilities to say that this is the definitive or full translation is pretty hard to do because the words themselves bring in so many aspects of the richness of who the, the divine reality of Jesus is. And so the kings and emperors uh, of old, particularly in Rome, began to grow in their understanding of being declared the Son of God. And this was a position uh, usually achieved by winning great victories, by having defeated all of the other uh, people trying to ascend to the throne. And certainly uh, Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus had to fight civil wars to put themselves in places of authority and power. And even after that, for a Roman emperor to be an emperor of any note, he had to go up and slap around the Germans uh, for a few years, cross the Rhine, do something against the Goths or the Visigoths. They had to win victories on the military fields. And so for uh, the declaration to be a god or a son of God, which eventually Augustus uh, was. Uh, he became known as the divine Augustus after his death. But he stayed dead. And we have here a difference which is going to ring in the ears of the Romans and in the Jewish folks of Rome that there's something the same but different. We're declaring Jesus to be the Son of God, vindicating him in his right place as a Son of the Most High. Not a novel claim, but certainly novel in the way that it is applied. And what I mean by that is that, uh, again, with David's line, he establishes his kingdom by defeating Goliath. And the Jewish uh, tradition understood that. The Romans understood that their emperors needed to have success in conquest and putting down uh, the peoples on the borders, the, uh, the barbarians. Jesus defeats sin and death, and his vindication is that he got up. It's not that we declare him divine and his death and we pray to him in his death. No, we pray to him because he rose in this world, walked around for 40 days, interacted with his disciples. He didn't have some transformed existence on another plane of existence. He actually was resurrected in this existence, which then vindicated him in his suffering and in his humility. Because Jesus did not ascend to the throne by the normal human means that are defined as powerful and grand. It was Psalm 35, Vindicate me, O Lord, 
those who accuse me, the false trial, the accusations, the accusations that he was actually uh, throwing out demons because he was possessed by demons, all of the accusations and charges about the way Jesus did ministry, who he spent time with, who he broke bread with, all of the accusations, all of the charges, and he prayed that God would vindicate him, that he would be shown to have been in the right as he acted in and through his ministry and life. And the vindication is his resurrection, that God blessed him and honored his work, and the proof of that is he didn't stay dead, that he defeated death. It is the power for the Jewish believer that was promised in Ezekiel 36. And I want to read a couple of these verses to you because just imagine how these verses are pulsing through Paul as he dictates this letter and what he hopes and expects those who are well-schooled in the Jewish scriptures, whether they are proselytes or whether they are uh, Jewish by birth and by uh, heritage. Starting in verse 22 of chapter 35, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into my own land. And then the verses we often use as an assurance of pardon, I will sprinkle you with clean water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Imagine reading Paul's words about a vindicated risen Messiah, the good news of an emperor and a king, and having memorized and meditated on Ezekiel, which was a passage of expectation for first century Jewish people, and seeing that in the foolishness of the cross, in the humility of the brokenness of Jesus' life, therein lies the vindication and the power and the love of God. And that he was, at that moment, vindicating his name as he brought together Roman and Jewish believers into one church. As his spirit unites them in a whole. One body, one Lord, one Savior, one faith. That's the basis on which our emperor takes the throne. Not just having saved us but vindicating his name and his work. What does that mean? Well, if he's not simply, although wonderfully, a first responder who saved our life, but an emperor and a king who has defeated sin and death, who has vindicated and shown himself to be the great I am, how do we respond? What does he ask us to do, which we've been wrestling with for the last couple of weeks? 
It's true that we often wrestle with the hard things in our lives, the things that the Lord seems to ask us to endure. We often think of those personal illnesses, the loss of a job. It often has to do with difficulties happening within our lives. And of course, the Lord is absolutely mindful and sensitive to our pain and suffering. And we often ask the Lord to reduce our illnesses or the tragedies. But how often do we see the Lord leading us into places of difficulty and challenge and danger? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in the United States from 1930 to 1931 studying at Union Seminary in New York City. And from many of his uh, documents, he wrote uh, his good friend, uh, an African-American theologian that he was in studying with at Union. And as he experienced the American situation and the racism, uh, as he experienced the joy of worshiping in Harlem at Abyssinian uh, Baptist Church, as he experienced uh, the divisions, the inability to eat in the same restaurant as his friend in many places. It raised his sensitivity so that when he returned to Germany and began to see the rise of Nazism, part of his motivation, according to his own documents, is that he did not want Germany to become like America. That he didn't want to see the same hatred and division that was between white and black in the United States happen in the midst of his nation of Germany between Jew and German, as defined by Aryan superiority. And he felt the Lord leading him and calling and demanding that he stand against the evil of segregation between Jew and German. The Lord was calling him. His life was eventually one martyred because his king had him stand for justice and for mercy. Keller tells the story, Tim Keller, of uh, a woman in New York who led a Bible study with several of the folks who worked in her house, African-American women. And as she began uh, to lead that Bible study, they asked her if she would come and help plant a church in their neighborhood to start a Bible study there because it wasn't always easy for them to get up to her house when they weren't working. The story goes that as she started to do that and to spend time down in Harlem, she was engaged and her husband uh, to be told her not to. And much like reflecting on the Matthew 10 passage, she followed Jesus. He broke off the engagement. She ended up helping to start a church and at the same time died single. What does it mean for our king to ask us to do hard things? To look around us and to see that the cultural pressures that are often overwhelming that have been simply expressed to us as the way things are, and God forbid, even 
supported by Scripture itself, often in our nation. It's not simply that congregation members are hardened, but often from the pulpit, racial separation, the rightness, quote-unquote, of not having interracial marriages or staying separate but equal. It came from the pulpit as much as it came from the cultural ease that surrounded us. What happens when God asks us to do hard things, to live according to the ethics of his kingdom, to do things which may put our families and our finances and our status within a given culture at risk, even a culture we believe to be so rooted in many aspects of God's wisdom. Those ideas can be overwhelming, and as we wrestle with them in our nation again, what do we do? My encouragement is, I hope biblical, first, of course, to pray. Reaction and going off half-cocked is always a bad idea. Prayer. As I talk to many of my friends, the skill of asking questions becomes so key to those we know who are part of communities that have been on the short end of the stick, robbed of power and access to the making of laws, asking questions, how do we respond to the history which we cannot change, but a future which is being transformed by the gospel? In asking, we're called to listen. And after we listen, we're called to act. And we know that those skills must be first and foremost fostered within our homes. Husbands and wives, children and friends, do we listen to one another? Do we ask questions? Part of the challenge in our culture right now is it feels like, and it is a reality, that we talk past each other that as we have adopted particular perspectives, are we within our own communities of faith, within our families and our extended families, praying, asking questions, listening, and then acting, acting in ways that may restore, encourage, and rebuild relationships. Jesus was not meant to be a household deity. So even as we seek to have those skills applied in our families, it is, of course, for the purpose of transforming all of culture, all of the world. He is Lord of all. It will never be enough to have a Jesus who simply makes my marriage better or helps my children, or keeps me healthy, or has for me good work to do with my hands. The Romans understood household deities, and they used them regularly to try and maintain the status quo. But they also knew that there were bigger gods. They were confused as to whether or not their emperor was that kind of deity for the whole world. 
Paul opens his book, his letter to the Romans, by affirming that there is a universal Lord, there is a universal emperor, the Son of God himself, declared so by the work of his death and resurrection. May we too rest in the knowledge that we have a God not simply for our homes, but for the world itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are God of all creation, that you are restoring all creation. We ask that you would give us the strength and the grace to know what it is to rest in you. And in so doing, be willing to listen when you call us to do things that are hard and dangerous. And Lord, outside of what the world says is wise. But as you will tell us in this book, the foolishness of God is wiser than the world. May we rest in that. In Christ's name, amen.